Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome back to the Digital HR Leaders podcast after our summer sojourn. I'm certainly feeling revitalised after my family holiday in the Greek Cyclades Islands. I hope you had a wonderful summer too and are ready to get back into work mode after a well-deserved break. At the Digital HR Leaders podcast, it is our mission to share valuable insights from global HR thought leaders on how, as people leaders, we can enhance our workforce and add more business value. Now, we all know what great leadership isn't just about allocating tasks and excellent project management. It's about how we treat our employees and how we inspire them to be the best they can be. So in today's show, I'm delighted to invite Rasmus Hugard, founder and CEO of Potential Project and co-author of Compassionate Leadership, How to Do Hard Things in a Human Way, to talk to us about how we can become more effective leaders through the power of compassion. Compassion cannot stand alone. It has to go together with what we call wisdom. So you basically need the compassion together with the drive or the compassion together with the courage. Leaders who have both of those skills have more than double positive impact in terms of work-life balance. So it's really important that you basically mix the heart with the human. If you have both, it's really the, the silver bullet. Rasmus and his organization, Potential Projects, are on a mission to create a more human way of working and leading. If you haven't come across Potential Projects yet, they have done some fantastic work with the likes of Accenture, IKEA and Lego by helping them unlock organisational performance through compassionate leadership. So, to start off our discussion, I asked Rasmus to share with us a little bit about his background and how he came to start his global research, leadership development and consulting firm. I'll keep it short. We're 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 a research and leadership development firm uh, based in some 30 countries with some 250 uh, folks around the world, helping big clients like Accenture, McKinsey, Microsoft, Cisco, and so on, to really create ultimately a more human world of work by utilizing research and research-based leadership interventions. That's the the short story. And I came about uh, starting the organization. Some 14 years ago, when uh, when I had spent many many years in uh, monasteries around the world, uh, really learning and practicing the art of meditation, how to harness the full potential of the mind, really becoming clear-minded, focused, and I would say a kinder person. Then I became a researcher. Then I ended up in the in the corporate world, and. I just realized that people were not really living up to their potential, that people were not as kind as they could be, not as creative, and certainly not as happy as, as, as I felt they could be. And, and with all the techniques and tools that I practiced in the monasteries, I realized that there was really a, a treasure trove that everybody should have access to. And that's when I, I decided to, to, to try to bring these methods into, into the corporate world. Well, it's a perfect topic for our audience today. Mostly HR leaders, HR professionals, you know, generally tasked with helping their organizations and their leaders lead better. And obviously the last two years has really shown the importance of, of good leadership. And, and certainly we're going to be we're talking a lot about that. So your new book or relatively new book, Compassionate Leadership, I know you're the co- co-author of that with Jacqueline, How to Do Hard Things in a Human Way, which I think... We've definitely had to go through in the last couple of years. And I guess some people will immediately think, you know, doing hard things is simply incompatible with with compassion. So, so how do you start the ball rolling in, in breaking 
down that way of thinking? It's, it's, a, it's an excellent question and it points to the big issue that many leaders are thinking they are facing, which is a false dichotomy that either you have to choose to be a strong, good and effective leader or a nice, soft human being. And that is an absolute false dichotomy and a terrible choice to have to make because then we're bringing humanity out of our leadership. So it's really about realizing that those two can very well go together. And that is what our whole research project leading up to the book was about figuring out how from a data perspective and how from an anecdotal perspective can we create a roadmap for bringing those two together. So it's not doing hard things or being a nice person, but it's really bringing them together. And the reason why it's so fundamentally important is because in leadership, you know, the name of the game is to do hard things. Leaders are the ones that have to make the difficult decisions, whether that's a restructure, whether that's giving tough feedback, whether that's laying people off to save the whole company, whatever it is, that's the role of leadership. And if leaders can't manage to bring humanity and kindness, compassion into that, organizations will be ruthless, bad places. So it's really, really important, and especially with a very uncertain, volatile world as we're experiencing for the past years, it is even more more important than before. We're using the word compassion here, and we hear a lot about empathy. I've read a great article that you published recently in Harvard Business Review. So how do you define compassion, and, and what is the difference between compassion and empathy? I think listeners would would welcome understanding that. They are very different, even though we often think of them as the same. If you imagine a, a chart where on, on the x-axis you have the understanding of people's problems, suffering, and on the y-axis you have the willingness to actually jump in and help people when you see their suffering, all the way down at the bottom left you have pity. You know that people are suffering but you don't really care much and you don't do much about it. If you take one step up the ladder you come to sympathy. And one more step you're in empathy, you know, you really recognize how people feel and you're willing to step into action. But there is one more step, which is compassion, which is where you basically take empathy and add action. So empathy, that is literally when we experience, when we take on the suffering of someone that we meet that is suffering because of what is called mirror neurons in our brain. When we see someone that is suffering, we can see it in their facial expressions because we recognize from ourselves. And then we feel that, that's empathy. Compassion is when we take empathy as that spark of, huh, I feel what you feel. And then you take a step back and ask, how can I help? And then you move into action and do something that actually alleviates the suffering rather than just sitting and feeling the pain with the person, which is noble and beautiful and very human. But especially in leadership, doesn't drive any results for yourself because you can suffer from burnout if you do that a lot. It doesn't help the person and it doesn't help the organization. So we need to connect with empathy, but lead with compassion. The next question is, how do we help our leaders become more compassionate? You know, is, it, is compassion something that everyone that's listening to this can unlock? Is it something that can be taught or learned? I think it's a bit of a both end. On one hand, some of us are obviously born with a stronger sense of both empathy and compassion. While empathy is a little harder to train, compassion is easier to train because compassion is that intent to be of benefit. So we can absolutely train in compassion. There's lots of practices that help that. And ultimately, it's simply about applying compassion to how you engage with other people. The more you do that, the more you become a compassionate person. 
And what neuroscience has shown is that the part in the brain just behind the prefrontal cortex that is associated with having positive intents for others grows. It literally gets bigger the more you apply compassion to your way of going about people. And, it, and is there a link between emotional intelligence and, and compassion? You know, did, did you see that in some of the research and the data that you, you pulled out? Yeah, absolutely. If people have very little emotional intelligence, you also have very little uh, empathy. When you have little empathy, you don't see that other people are suffering and therefore you don't feel compelled to go into action, which is compassion. So yes, a very strong correlation. And I suppose you could look at it, an empathetic leader might listen uh, a lot. So again, if we think about a lot of the audience here, HR professionals, employee listening has stepped up, particularly in the last two years for obvious reasons. But listening is one thing, taking action is another. Would you draw the same parallel between empathy and compassion? Empathy is listening, but compassion is listening and taking action and communicating that you're taking action as well. That's exactly the, the, the correct definition. Yeah, yeah. Empathy is when we listen and it's a beautiful thing to do. People will appreciate it. But at the end of the day, they won't feel that they got any help. Compassion is when we move into action, we actually help to change their problems, either by listening or coaching or by handing it over to them and empowering them to fix them themselves. Whatever it is, compassion is when we actually solve things. Staying with leadership for the time being, you stop someone on the street, you ask any, uh, maybe some of the listeners here and ask them to name a current business leader. You know, you will probably hear names like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg. I wouldn't say any of them are particularly synonymous with compassion or maybe empathy as well. Maybe I could be wrong. I apologize, Elon, Jeff and Mark, if I'm wrong. You know, are they are they outliers though? Are they, you know, because I can think of many other leaders, Satya Nadella obviously is a, is a good example, I think, of that, that seems to exhibit empathy and compassion. Yeah, I think uh, Satya is a, is a great example of possibly the opposite of, of the ones you mentioned first. Taking empathy, basically saying that's the superpower of, of leadership. Or you'll find the CEO of Cisco who says, you know, empathy is the way to lead and the way to run a business. You'll find the CEO of, of Southwest Airlines who would say the same. So there are just a lot of CEOs out there that really these days propagate for the need for both empathy and certainly compassion. The CEO of Southwest Airlines, he literally has an office just next to his office where there are three people sitting day and night and tracking any difficult situation, like significant difficult situation in any of the 70,000 employees' lives. So anybody experiencing a significant loss, a divorce, an accident, anything that is very difficult, they will track that and they will immediately get the background of that person and what happened that will then be brought to his office where he will do a handwritten note that will be directly express mailed to the people so that within 24 hours, they have a direct message from their own CEO of 70,000 people basically expressing his support and if there's anything that can be done. And I think that is such a beautiful example of walking the talk. You don't just talk about compassion, but you bring it into systems in your organization. Everybody is seen. Nobody's left behind. Wow. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing story. And I know Southwest Airlines is, is a particularly successful airline in comparison to some of its competitors. And, and I, I don't know if you saw in the data that some of the benefits of compassionate leaders on business outcomes, but also people outcomes as well. I mean, I don't know if you can talk to talk to some of those. Yeah, if, if we just stay with Southwest Airlines, because it is an exceptional company. Uh, so so an, an, an anecdote that is not coming from our research, but, but other research that was done a few decades ago, 
when Southwest Airlines, they, uh, they, they, they came to the world about 50 years ago, very quickly, they started to take on a lot of clients from their competitors. And for the past 50 years, they've been the fastest growing company on average in history, like year on year. And one of the core principles for the, for the founder of Southwest Airlines, uh, Herb Keller, was compassion. And what researchers found was because basically all the competitors, they wanted to check out why is it that they're so successful? And they found out that their turnaround time, which is the time it takes for a plane to land on board, board and get into the air again, was significantly faster with Southwest Airlines. And that's where you make money. That's when you're in the air, not when you're on the ground. So it's very important. So all the spies from the other companies came in and tried to figure out how do they do the boarding differently by numbers, by names, by row. How do they do it? They couldn't find anything. It was only 10 years later that a sociologist, a team of sociologists came in and basically started to study Southwest Airlines. And they found that when something bad happened on a plane, let's say the luggage, they couldn't load the luggage or the people that were loading luggage were a little bit too slow. In a normal airline uh, like Delta or American or whatever, the captain would take off his hat, put his head out through that little triangular window and shout to people like, get your finger out, we need to get a fly, you know, hurry up. In Southwest, the, the captain would also take his cap off. He would open the door, he would run down and he would just, you know, roll up the sleeves and help. So there's just that sense of we have got each other's back. And when you got each other's back, everything is more seamless. Things just work much faster. So compassion is just an absolute glue and superpower in organization life. How do leaders actually go about putting it into action? You know, what steps can someone listening do today to, to help them lead more compassionately? And to avoid it just being like a, a slogan and playing lip service to it as well. That's what, what our whole research project was about. How can you become a more compassionate leader? And the first thing that we found in our data, which is an important one, is compassion cannot stand alone. It has to go together with what we call wisdom, or you could say the understanding, the knowledge on how to motivate people and how to drive for performance. So you basically need the compassion together with the drive or the compassion together with the courage. Leaders who have both of those skills have a more than double positive impact in terms of work-life balance for their followers, in terms of uh, job satisfaction, in terms of performance, in terms of burnout and many other things. So it's really important that you basically mix the heart with the human. If you're just human, you get good results. If you're just heart, you also can get good results. If you have both, it's really the, the silver bullet. So how do you do that? In our research and through all these interviews, we found that there were four traits that are really, really important. And the first one is when you do hard things to bring a quality of caring presence. You need to be really present when you give tough feedback because if you're not present, like if you pay attention to your phone or look out the window or not really present with the person, the person will know that you don't care. That doesn't work. So caring presence is step number one. Step number two is caring courage, which is to develop the courage to move into uncomfortable, confrontational, difficult situations like giving tough feedback. When we have caring courage, we can then move into the third step, which is caring candor, which is the ability of getting to the point, saying what needs to be said. And it is very different from brutal honesty and radical candor, which is about, you know, just get the shit out and just speak your mind. That's not what it's about. It's about being very, very skillful about how you present things, but still do it in a very direct way because direct is faster. And then when you have the caring candor, you move to the fourth step, which is caring transparency. 
basically treating people like adults by telling them as much as you can, telling the whole story so they can make choices about their own life. And when you can go through the, we call it the flywheel of wise compassion, caring presence, caring uh, courage, candor and transparency, you're basically creating a culture of psychological safety and trust and thereby unleashing performance. But those are really the four elemental steps. There's quite a link between your work uh, and also Amy Edmondson's, obviously, who's you know written and researched a lot of work around psychological safety. What you've been talking about and what, what Amy's talking about, clearly there are synergies and, and, and clearly even more important in the current environment that we're in as well. Absolutely, yeah. Amy and I are good friends and have worked on a number of clients together and, and, and definitely very inspired by her, I would say, groundbreaking and fantastic work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, we won't talk about politics today, of course, um, but when you look around the world and you look at, you look at leaders, then it, it's, it, it's not obvious that, that, that many of them have compassion or empathy. And hopefully we can start to ship through our organisations, which if you look at things like the Edelman Trust Barometer, people actually trust their organisations more than they trust governments at the moment. Maybe it's part of that's down to leadership, perhaps. I, I absolutely think that it is. And I think the best example of that, and without talking anything about politics, but we saw that for decades in, if we talk about the US, you know, politicians were the, like, say, the guardians of moral and ethics. Then came Trump and suddenly that reversed and it became companies like the big companies that started to stand up for what was right. And we still see that movement rolling through the world. So I definitely think that there is a big power and, and and movement in companies standing up for what is morally and ethically right. I'd be really interested, you know, what data did you collect to, to kind of understand these leaders in, in places like, like Unilever and Southwestern that were doing that? I'd be love to hear that. And you just think maybe it will inspire some of the people analytics practitioners on the uh, listening to the, the episode to, to maybe go and do some of the work in their organization as well. So so there were two uh, two sets of data points for this uh, for this study. One was just a ton of data. We had more than uh, 2 million data points uh, that came out of a big study we launched together with Forbes and Harvard Business Review. So we had some 75,000 leaders answering. And now I have to think that would have been around 150 questions around compassion and, and, and wisdom in leadership, including empathy. So that data, of course, which we have then, then crunched together with Harvard, together with Columbia, together with uh, Berkeley Haas, together with uh, Rotman, and together with Amsterdam Business School. Uh, that was one part of the data. The other one were these more, I don't want to say anecdotal, but we had a very strict uh, uh, interview guide, which we took through these 350 executives in, in large global organizations. So it's basically all of this that came together. And if anybody wants to go know more details of that, they can go to our, our website and go into the science section as a, what we call the human leader infographics, which give these very short um, explanations of all the data that we are not sharing in the book. Brilliant. And that's potentialproject.com, is it, the, the website? That's yeah, we correct. will come to that at yeah. the end. But just if someone's listening to this bit and they press pause <laughs> and go and find, then it's probably helpful to do that. Really interesting stuff. Fascinating. Massive study. It must have been, it must have been fun to do and, and, and sort of, analyze through the through the data points as well and, and get the story out in a few moments we'll continue my conversation with rasmus but before we go back let me take this short break as an opportunity to talk to you about the sponsors of this season's podcast ChartHop is transforming the way companies manage and support their people because like a giant alien robot shifting into a semi-truck when it comes to how you view your people 
there's more than meets the eye. Delivering a fresh take on people analytics that's out of this world, ChartHop seamlessly consolidates and visualizes disparate sources of people data into one powerful platform, creating more informed, empowered, and connected organizations. From executives to individual contributors, to every employee in between, ChartHop is designed for everyone in the organization. Head to charthop.com forward slash digital HR to learn how HR leaders are leveraging ChartHop. That's charthop.com forward slash digital HR. Welcome back to my conversation with Rasmus Hugard. Before the break, Rasmus and I spoke about the steps that people leaders can take to start adopting compassionate leadership. In this section of our discussion, we will go deeper as we delve into the research and data behind this revolutionary way of humanistic leadership. So your research has found that a large percentage of employees now expect leaders to speak out on societal issues whether that's racial injustice, social inequality, or similar, maybe the, the current, what's what's happening in Ukraine. Why is that happening now, do you think? you know, Because I don't think 20 years ago, um, if I think back to 20 years ago when I was a lot younger, obviously, uh, and in the workforce, I don't think people would have necessarily expected that of their leaders. It, it is certainly a different world now than it was even a decade ago, certainly two decades ago. And the big movement has been going on for a few decades, but especially the last three years with the social injustice, the racial injustice, and then came COVID and now a war in Europe. I think the, the, the simple answer is when the world gets hard, people are feeling more vulnerable, more insecure, and therefore looking for those people that are responsible for their well-being, meaning their leaders. So actually take a stance in the world. And fortunately, we are seeing that big time. I mean, the most beautiful example is all the companies that have just pulled out of Russia, like almost on day one of the war. So there is that very strong, if you want to retain and attract good talent, you have to bring ethics and morale into how you lead, how you speak out. Companies can no longer be neutral in the, in the both political and, and global voices. Yeah, and it's interesting because if you think if we think back, I think it's about three years. Um, the business roundtable in the US, which I think is what 180 plus uh, of the biggest organisations that are headquartered there, they came out with that statement and said that you know no longer was it just about generating profit for shareholders; it was about giving benefit to all stakeholders, customers, employees, suppliers, communities, which is quite interesting, and shareholders, and. Some could argue that was just lip service, that was a statement, but I like to think glass half full and, and think, well, but they wouldn't say that unless they, they meant it and were prepared to put some steps into uh, place to achieve that. And that requires a very different approach to leadership than perhaps in the past and, and where compassion and, and wisdom is, is, is even more important, particularly as we think about how decision-making starts to flow through the organization rather than coming from the top. I'd, I'd love to see, I'd love to hear if some of the research you did really kind of drew some of that out and, and your own views on that as well. Yeah. It was not particularly a part of our research, but working with some 200 large fortune, let's say 2000 companies, we definitely see this. 
and it is not just lip service. Back then at the round table, I'm sure there were a few of them that did lip service, but a lot of them did not. And we see that in how companies are taking a very different approach to really caring for people. I think HR functions over the past few years have become incredibly focused on the mental health of people. Like go on LinkedIn now and just look at the number of CHROs, CLOs, and so on that talk about the importance of mental health and really taking it serious. So I think the whole role of ethics in HR has just absolutely boomed. And I have to say, in my position where 14 years ago, this was not the case. And now I'm sitting in the middle of all of these organizations. It's a real joy to see. And I know, um, I mean, we've had CHROs from companies like Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola company, Walmart, Donna Morris, um, Kathleen Hogan. I know, I think you and Jacqueline have written an article a few years ago in uh, Microsoft. And you're right, all those organizations, that, you know, it's one of the first things that you hear from a CHRO talking about how they've really focused on well-being, particularly obviously in the last two years. But I think this was happening anyway. It's arguably been accelerated by by the pandemic. Maybe for the benefit of listeners, I know that you, you wrote co-wrote an article with, with Kathleen, as I said, in HBR, and that really talks about the ecosystem that, that Microsoft has built around listening to employees. I, I, it'd be great. I mean, if you could share that, that would be that would be great as well. Yeah. So Microsoft, when Satya took over, he took over a, a culture that was very different than it is today. It was, you know, an engineering and sales company. Uh, many would say it was a bit of a cutthroat culture, and he really wanted to put a stop to that. And he introduced, as I mentioned in the beginning, empathy as like a core principle for how people should lead. And it's incredible to see the changes that has been made, him and Kathleen have made in the organization, including that total commitment to listening and listening and listening to employees' needs. They just uh, published a statement that uh, that they are doubling on the benefits to people to compensate for the inflation that we see in, in basically prices on food and so on right now. So Microsoft just goes straight in and, and covers for their, for, their, for their employees. I think it's just what we need to see and what we're seeing more and more of. Another thing that you know, we do, haven't talked about yet is around climate and sustainability. And there's enough data out there that suggests that employees are expecting their companies have a position on that as well. I, I don't know if you've got any examples of, of companies that are really pushing forward with that based on showing that that leadership with compassion around as well. I, there are There is this uh, annual report that comes out with uh, what are the most climate sustainable companies in the world or the biggest fighters for, for, for climate. And it's, it's generally Patagonia, uh, Unilever and Ikea at the top of that. And, and everybody knows Patagonia is doing that. And many people know that Unilever IKEA is a bit of the surprise for many because you think, you know, it's just a big uh, furniture manufacturer in the world. But having spent quite a lot of time with IKEA and with Jesper Brodin, the, the CEO, their commitment to the climate is probably the most committed company in the world. The amount of, like we're talking billions of euros they spend every year to make IKEA a, a, a climate positive company. Uh, as an example, every single warehouse has solar panels on the roof. All they produce, they're constantly every year reducing carbon on every single product. That's just a rule they have. And then on top of that, the, the, the level of humanitarian work they do. And it's funny because these things are not known out in the public, but it's happening. IKEA is, uh, is, is sponsoring, I think it's seven big villages or refugee camps, different parts of the world where other organizations um, have not been able to support because of political reasons or whatever, IKEA can go in because they have a lot of money and because they have this commitment. 
basically building these massive camp camps for thousands and thousands and thousands of people, providing them food, shelter, healthcare, everything. So I think IKEA is a real shining light of a company that is taking unbelievable responsibility in the world, both for the climate and for people. And it's interesting because it's, you know, the right thing to do, but also ultimately it's going to help attract, develop and retain the right talent, which obviously helps the organization as well. I'm not saying that's why they do it, but, but it, that's, a, that's a great side effect of, of investing in, 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 in initiatives like that. It is. And I think the other thing uh, is not just internal, it's also external to clients. We, we know that consumers these days are looking equally to if products are produced with human rights and climate in mind as to the price. And IKEA is, of course, a very, you know, very moral, ethical company, but they're also very smart. You know, they know that in a few years, people will look a lot to that. And if they can't live up to that, they're going to lose customers. So it's also just a matter of doing good business. And I think that's the beauty of good business goes hand in hand with doing good things in the world. They are not, they are, you know, they go together. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting how how that going back to the business round table. It's going to be interesting to see how that evolves over the sort of next five to nine, five to ten years as things like climate and sustainability become even more important topics than than they already are. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Rasmus Hugard on the importance of developing compassionate leadership. In this final section of the podcast, we discuss Rasmus's research on the contentious debate as to whether men or women make better leaders. On top of this interesting data point, we will also be discussing the role of culture and what HR leaders can start doing today to help build a culture of compassionate leadership. This is always a tricky uh, subject to, to touch on, but uh, you've certainly done a lot of data and you, you've analysed you know, a lot of leaders there. What does the research say about any differences between men and women um, when it becomes to being compassionate leaders? All right, David. So given you and I are both men, should I tell the truth, which is not going to be happy for us, or should I just come up with Tell something? me the truth, because I suspect, I, suspect <laughs> I suspect it will prove my hypothesis. <laughs> we'll still see. So let's start at the top. I mean, the data is so conclusive and there's so much data and different interesting points on this on gender and, and leadership and compassion. So first of all, top line, females are better leaders than males, period. And it's significant. And if you look at the four different constellations of, of leadership that can be a female to a female, a female to a male, a male to a female, and a male to a male, the best of those four, four constellations is when a female leads a female. The second is a female leading a male. The third is a male leading a female. And the fourth is a male leading a male. And you can add up what's the like through line of that. Basically, females 
make things a little bit smoother. And I'm really apologizing on my own gender and all the males out there uh, hearing this. Um, but if we move a little bit further, females are more compassionate and men are more empathetic, which is a total surprise to us. But basically meaning men are a little bit more sentimental in how they lead, where females are generally more action-driven. Okay, here's a person that suffered. What can I do rather than just sit down and listen? That was a real surprise, but again, data is conclusive. A third thing that we found was that females are generally rating themselves as low on compassion and low on wisdom, and males rate themselves as high on compassion and high on wisdom. The followers of females rate the females high, and the followers of males rate them low. So it's just a direct opposite, like a complete mismatch in both males and females' minds. So overall, I would say the conclusion for those of you that are females out there listening to this, trust yourself much more than you do and really become aware of the, 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 the benefits you bring to the people you lead on average. And to the males, like, try and have a little bit more humility and, and, and modesty in, in how you see yourself. And then there's one thing that was also conclusive for anybody that wants to be a more compassionate and wise leader. Practicing mindfulness is like a real silver bullet because it helps you to be more self-aware and thereby act in the most you know positive manner moment by moment. So mindfulness helps both males and females. So there's a hope, isn't there, that as we seem to be moving into a world where we have more female leaders, both in politics, in, in organisations, that hopefully will move to a more compassionate world. And, and, and we, us, us men, some of us men that aren't so compassionate, will be drawn along with that because ultimately we'll need to do that to be effective leaders. I, I think that's so true. And one of those infographics that I talked about just before that you can find on our website is uh, actually putting dollar numbers under the... Uh, the, the cost of having male leaders versus female leaders. And it's, it's, it's quite, quite amazing numbers we have there. And I think uh, an anecdotal just proof point here is if you look at, 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 at politicians like world leaders in politics right now, just look at the distribution between genders and who do you see as inspiring, like in Germany or in, in, uh, in, in New Zealand and so on versus Russia, Turkey, Brazil, China, whatever. I mean, there's so many great examples of that. I'd add the United Kingdom to your list, second list there as oh, okay. well. Okay, I, I didn't, can, didn't want to offend I can anyone say there. That. I can say that, uh, <laughs> but we won't, we won't dwell on it, I don't think. But, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually. I think, you know, if you're a male leader, you might want to dig into some of that and learn a little bit. But, um, you know, if, if and I don't know if there was anything in the data which showed that where an organisation has a balance of gender at, at the leadership team level, whether the, the compassion was higher um, versus, you know, I, I'm guessing organisations that have all male leadership teams, the compassion would be lower. I don't know if you dug into the data like that as well. Not in that way, but there was an indirect one which showed that, which is uh, industries. And you can correlate industries with how their gender diversity is. And in tech, which is where there's more male leaders, the, the leaders are scored as absolutely at the bottom of all industries, where healthcare and government are the ones that are at top, where there's generally a, a more even distribution. 
So if we if we're looking at a large organization, obviously you you work with a lot of large organizations, as you said. You know, at what level does compassion help the most? Does it need to be embodied by the CEO? Is it HR's responsibility, middle management, everyone's? Well, first of all, it is obviously everyone's. But if you are in a company that doesn't have a CEO or a top management or a culture that supports it, it's really hard to be acknowledged and maybe even being effective as a compassionate leader. There are cultures in some industries like banking, where it is sometimes better to not even worry about these things because it can be a career suicide. And if you think again back to the story, you know, you outlined about Satcher and 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 how he changed the culture at Microsoft. If you want to change the culture within an organization, then 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 really it needs to come from the top, I guess, with the CEO embodying that throughout. Yeah, yeah, and that's also what we see with almost all all of our clients. And again, really large companies, it is the CEO that really moves the needle simply by how they act, how we help them to act, and also how they speak out about these things. What is the role of HR in this? What can HR do to help their organizations become more compassionate? And and how can they measure that? Maybe I want to take a step back and say, why is the compassion important? It is important because compassion is the most direct and fast way of creating a more human world of work. And a more human world of work is where there's equality where people can be themselves you know we develop as humans by being in contact with our companies that's why it's really important because that's you know just achieving human potential compassion is the fastest way of doing that so how can hr people help these movements i think first of all introducing it in the values and the behaviors of the company and more so introducing it in any kind of leadership training and culture development. And thirdly, especially in top team programs, top team development, bringing it in there. So that's on the developmental side. Then there's also something around the systems. Like how do you you recruit? What are the questions you ask? What are the profiles you're looking for? How do you compensate like what are bonuses based on? Is it based on just results or is it also based on, on, on behavior? So there's a whole lot of system uh, aspects that should be thought into it as, uh, as well. But the human side is the most important. So basically, training programs, culture change programs to create more human and more compassionate organizations. You talked about some CHROs that, that, that you um, interviewed for the book as well. Is there an extra challenge for a CHRO who's, who's really trying to instill some of this within to their organization is it is there more is it more challenging or is it too early to say you know if you're managing a remote team for example what are some of the things that you know whether you're hr or not what a leader can do to can try and bring that compassion through it is not more difficult but it is more important in a hybrid world people feel less connected to others therefore the way leaders show up with a genuine sense of care is more important. If you only see your manager once a week and it's on a Zoom call, the way they show up matters 10 times more than if you were in an office. So being very deliberate about how do you train your people, your leaders to show care, compassion in how they show up in a virtual reality is um, very more, much more important, but not more, not more difficult. So this is a this is the question, Rasmus. We're asking everyone on this series of the, of the podcast, and, and actually, you touched on it a little bit uh, earlier. What do you think the role of ethics is in HR? Ethics in HR is 
fundamentally important. We all spend a lot of hours at work, generally more than half of our waking hours. If those hours are not meaningful, experienced as an experience of care and concern and humanness, we as HR leaders are really doing disservice to people and creating companies and societies that are just not living up to their potential. I think a, a great example of, of this is um, Ellen Shook, the CHRO of Accenture, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world with 700,000 people. And when she started there, it was a very, very different, you know, consulting culture, very hard, very male dominated. And she just made the commitment together with her former uh, CEO, Pierre Nantam, and her current uh, CEO, uh, Julie Sweet, to create the, the most truly human organization in the world. And it has been fascinating to be on that journey with them to see how she's really taking a stance on ethics and everybody in the organization has to feel a strong sense of belonging, a strong sense of care. That is a massive undertaking that I'm deeply impressed by and really taking a stance of what is HR in the world. And I should just say, of course, Accenture is not perfect. They are not there yet and you'll never be there because humans are imperfect. But it is incredible to see someone like Ellen taking such a major stance. Rasmus, it's been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot and I have started your book. I will be reading it. I mean, again, before I ask you to how people can stay in touch with you, summarize the book very quickly and, and, and what people can, can take away from it. The very quick summary of the book is leadership requires that we do hard things. And doing hard things is against our human nature because we want to be good and we want to do good. So we need to learn to do the hard things in a human way so that we can feel congruence with ourselves and so that we can be effective while being good. And then it's basically outlining the path of how do you become a leader that does the hard in a human way with the, what we call the wise compassion flywheel doing, having caring presence, caring courage, caring candor and caring transparency. It's a great summary. Can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, find out more about potential projects? Sure. Yeah. The, go to our website, potentialproject.com. And if you want to see the research, then go to the insights part. You can follow me on LinkedIn. That's where I share what I do. And I think that's about it. That's great. Well, thanks very much, Rasmus. It's been, it's been great to speak to you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. My thanks again to Rasmus Hugard for sharing his insightful research on compassionate leadership. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. We'll be back next week while I'll be talking to co-authors Molly West-Duffy and Liz Fosleen on how to help ourselves and our teams avoid burnout and overcome the negative feelings associated with uncertainty and perfectionism. Until then, stay safe, stay well and take care.